Section 19 of the History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Emanuela. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Masven Roberts. Book 3. Chapters 42 to 54. Chapter 42. War with the Equi and Sabines. The military operations were not any more satisfactory than the domestic administration. The commanders were certainly at fault in having made themselves objects of detestation to the citizens, but otherwise the whole of the blame rested on the soldiers who, to prevent anything from succeeding under the auspices and leadership of the decemvirs, disgraced both themselves and their generals by allowing themselves to be defeated. Both armies had been routed, the one by the Sabines at Eretum, the other by the Equi on Algidus. Fleeing from Eretum, in the silence of the night, they had entrenched themselves on some high ground near the city between Fidene and Crustumeria. They refused to meet the pursuing enemy anywhere on equal terms, and trusted for safety to their entrenchments and the nature of the ground, not to arms or courage. On Algidus they behaved more disgracefully, suffered a heavier defeat, and even lost their camp. Deprived of all their stores, the soldiers made their way to Tusculum, looking for subsistence to the good faith and compassion of their hosts, and their confidence was not misplaced. Such alarming reports were brought to Rome that the Senate, laying aside their feeling against the Decembers, resolved that guards should be mounted in the city ordered that all who were of age to bear arms should mend the walls and undertake outpost duty before the gates, and decreed a supply of arms to be sent to Tusculum, to replace those which had been lost, whilst the Decembers were to evacuate Tusculum and keep their soldiers encamped. The other camp was to be transferred from Fidene on to the Sabine territory, and by assuming the offensive deter, the enemy from any project of attacking the city. 43. The Assassination of Sitius To these defeats at the hands of the enemy have to be added two infamous crimes on the part of the Decembers. Lucius Sitius was serving in the campaign against the Sabines. Seeing the bitter feeling against the Decembers, he used to hold secret conversations with the soldiery and threw out hints about the creation of tribunes and resorting to a secession. He was sent to select and survey a site for a camp, and the soldiers, who had been told off to accompany him, were instructed to choose a favorable opportunity for attacking and dispatching him. They did not effect their purpose with impunity. Several of the assassins fell around him whilst he was defending himself 
with a courage equal to his strength, and that was exceptional. The rest brought a report back to camp that Sichus had fallen into an ambush and had died fighting bravely, whilst some soldiers had been lost with him. At first, the informants were believed, but, subsequently, a cohort which had gone out by permission of the Decembers to bury those who had fallen, found, when they reached the spot, no corpse despoiled, but the body of Sichus, lying in the centre, fully armoured, with those around all turned towards him, whilst there was not a single body belonging to the enemy, nor any trace of their having retired. They brought the body back and declared that, as a matter of fact, he had been killed by his own men. The camp was filled with deep resentment, and it was decided that Sichus should be forthwith carried to Rome. The Decemvius anticipated this resolve by hastily burying him with military honors at the cost of the state. The soldiers manifested profound grief at his funeral, and the worst possible suspicions were everywhere entertained against the Decembers. 44. The Story of Virginia This was followed by a second atrocity, the result of brutal lust, which occurred in the city and led to consequences no less tragic than the outrage and death of Lucretia, which had brought about the expulsion of the royal family. Not only was the end of the Decemvius the same as that of the kings, but the cause of their losing their power was the same in each case. Appius Claudius had conceived a guilty passion for a girl of plebeian birth. The girl's father, Lucius Verginius, held a high rank in the army of Algidus, he was a man of exemplary character, both at home and in the field. His wife had been brought up on equally high principles, and their children were being brought up in the same way. He had betrothed his daughter to Lucius Icilius, who had been tribune, an active and energetic man whose courage had been proved in his battles for the plebs. This girl now in the bloom of her youth and beauty, excited Appius' passions, and he tried to prevail on her by presents and promises, when he found that her virtue was proof against all temptation, he had recourse to unscrupulous and brutal violence. He commissioned a client, Marcus Claudius, to claim the girl as his slave, and to bar any claim on the part of her friends to retain possession of her till the case was tried, as he thought that the father's absence afforded a good opportunity for this illegal action. As the girl was going to her school in the forum, the grammar schools were held in booths there, the simvirs pondered ladies hands upon her, declaring that she was the daughter of a slave of his and a slave herself. He then ordered her to follow him, and threatened, if she hesitated, to carry her off by force. While the girl was stupefied with terror, her maid's shrieks, invoking the protection of the Quirites, 
drew a crowd together. The names of her father Virginius and her betrothed lover Icilius were held in universal respect. Regard for them brought their friends. Feeling of indignation brought the crowd to the maiden's support. She was now safe from violence. The man who claimed her said that he was proceeding according to law, not by violence. There was no need for any excited gathering. He cited the girl into court. Her supporters advised her to follow him. They came before the tribunal of Appius. The claimant rehearsed a story already perfectly familiar to the judge as he was the author of the plot. How the girl had been born in his house, stolen from there, transferred to the house of Virginius and fathered on him. These allegations would be supported by definite evidence and he would prove them to the satisfaction of Virginius himself, who was really most concerned as an injury had been done to him. Meanwhile, he urged it was only right that the slave girl should follow her master. The girl's advocates contended that Virginius was absent on the service of the state. He would be present in today's time if information was sent to him, and it was contrary to equity that in his absence he should incur risk with regard to his children. They demanded that he should adjourn the whole of the proceedings till the father's arrival, and in accordance with the law which he himself had enacted, grant the custody of the girl to those who asserted her freedom, and not suffer a maiden of ripe age to incur danger to her reputation before her liberty was imperiled. 45. Before giving judgment, Appius showed how liberty was upheld by that very law, to which the friends of Virginia had appealed in support of her demand. But he went on to say it guaranteed liberty only so far as its provisions were strictly adhered to as regarded both persons and cases. For, where personal freedom is the matter of claim, that provision holds good, because anyone can lawfully plead, but in the case of one who is still in her father's power, there is none but her father to whom her master need renounce possession. His decision, therefore, was that the father should be summoned, and, in the meanwhile, the man who claimed her should not forego his right to take the girl and give security to produce her on the arrival of her reputed father. The injustice of this sentence called forth many murmurs, but no one ventured on open protest until Publius Numitorius, the girl's grandfather, and Icilius, her betrothed, appeared on the scene. The intervention of Icilius seemed to offer the best chance of thwarting Appius, and the crowd made way for him. The lictor said that judgment had been given, and as Icilius continued loudly protesting, he attempted to remove him. Such rank injustice would have fired even a gentle temper. He exclaimed, I am, at your orders, Appius, to be removed at the point of the sword that you may stifle all comment on what you want to keep concealed. I am going to marry this maiden, 
and I am determined to have a just wife. Summon all the lictors of all your colleagues, give orders for the axes and rods to be in readiness. The betrothed of Echilius shall not remain outside her father's house. Even if you have deprived us of the two bulwarks of our liberty, the aid of our tribunes and the right of appeal to the Roman plebs, that had given you no right to our wives and children, the victims of your lust. Venture cruelty upon our backs and necks. Let female honor at least be safe. If violence is offered to this girl, I shall invoke the aid of the Quirites, here for my betrothed, Virginius, that of the soldiers, for his only daughter. We shall all invoke the aid of gods and men and you shall not carry out that judgment except at the cost of our lives. Reflect, Appius, I demand of you, whither you are going. When Virginius has come, he must decide what action to take about his daughter. If he submits to this man's claim, he must look out another husband for her. Meantime, I will vindicate her liberty at the price of my life. Sooner, then sacrifice my honor. 46. The people were excited and a conflict appeared imminent. The lictors had closed around the Chilius, but matters had not got beyond the treats on both sides when Appius declared that it was not the defense of Virginia that was Chilius' main object. A restless intriguer, even yet breathing the spirit of the tribuneship, was looking out for a chance of creating sedition. He would not, however, afford him material for it that day, but that he might know that it was not to his insolence that he was making a concession, but to the absent Virginius, to the name of father and to liberty he would not adjudicate on that day or issue any decree. He would ask Marcus Claudius to forego his right and allow the girl to be in the custody of her friends till the morrow. If the father did not then appear, he warned the Chilius and men of his stamp that neither as legislator would he be disloyal to his own law, nor as the Semvir would he lack firmness to execute it. He certainly would not call upon the lictors of his colleagues to repress the ringleaders of sedition. He should be content with his own. The time for perpetrating this illegality was thus postponed, and after the girl's supporters had withdrawn, it was decided, as the very first thing to be done, that the brother of Echilius and one of Numitor's sons, both active youths, should make their way straight to the gate and summon Virginius from the camp with all possible speed. They knew that the girl's safety turned upon her protector against lawlessness being present in time. They started on their mission, and riding at full speed brought the news to the father. While the claimant of the girl was pressing Echilius to enter his plea and name his sureties, and Echilius kept asserting that this very thing was being arranged, purposely spinning out the time to allow of his messengers getting first to the camp, the crowd everywhere held up their hands to show that every one of them was ready to be security for him. With tears in his eyes, he said, It is most kind of you. Tomorrow I may need your help. 
Now I have sufficient securities. So Virginia was bailed on the security of her relatives. Appius remained for some time on the bench to avoid the appearance of having taken his seat for that one case only. When he found that owing to the universal interest in this one case no other suitors appeared, he withdrew to his home and brought to his colleagues in camp not to grant leave of absence to Virginius and actually to keep him under arrest. This wicked advice came too late, as it deserved to do. Virginius had already obtained leave and started in the first watch. The letter ordering his detention was delivered the next morning and was therefore useless. 47. In the city, the citizens were standing in the forum in the nearly dawn, on the tiptoe of expectation. Virginius, in mourning garb, brought his daughter, similarly attired, and accompanied by a number of matrons, into the forum. An immense body of sympathizers stood around him. He went amongst the people, took them by the hand, and appealed to them to help him, not out of compassion only, but because they owed it to him. He was at the front day by day, in defense of their children and their wives. Of no man could they recount more numerous deeds of endurance and of daring than of him. What good was it all, he asked, if, while the city was safe, their children were exposed to what would be their worst fate if it were actually captured? Men gathered around him, whilst he spoke as though he were addressing the assembly. Icilius followed in the same strain. The women who accompanied him made a profounder impression by their silent weeping than any words could have made. Unmoved by all this, it was really madness rather than love that had clouded his judgment, Appius mounted the tribunal. The claimant began by a brief protest against the proceedings of the previous day. Judgment, he said, had not been given owing to the partiality of the judge. But before he could proceed with his claim or any opportunity was given to Virginius of replying, Appius intervened. It is possible that the ancient writers may have correctly stated some ground which he alleged for his decision, but I do not find one anywhere that would justify such an iniquitous decision. The one thing which can be propounded as being generally admitted is the judgment itself. His decision was that the girl was a slave. At first, all were stupefied with amazement at this atrocity, and for a few moments there was a dead silence. Then, as Marcus Claudius approached the matrons standing round the girl to seize her amidst their outcries and tears, Virginius, pointing with outstretched arms to Appius, cried, It is to Icilius and not to you, Appius, that I have betrothed my daughter. I have brought her up for wedlock, not for outrage. Are you determined to satisfy your brutal lusts like cattle and wild beasts? Whether these people will put up with this, I know not. But I hope that those 
who possess arms will refuse to do so. With the man who claimed the maiden was being pushed back by the group of women and her supporters who stood around, the crier called for silence. 48. The December, utterly abandoned to his passion, addressed the crowd and told them that he had ascertained not only through the insolent abuse of Icilius on the previous day and the violent behavior of Virginius, which the Roman people could testify to, but mainly from certain definite information received that all through the night meetings had been held in the city to organize a seditious movement. Forewarned of the likelihood of disturbance, he had come down into the forum with an armed escort, not to injure peaceable citizens, but to uphold the authority of the government by putting down the disturbance of public tranquility. It will therefore, he proceeded, be better for you to keep quiet. Go, Lictor, remove the crowd and clear a way for the master to take possession of the slave. When, in a transport of rage, he had thundered out these words, the people fell back and left the deserted girl a prey to injustice. Virginius, seeing no prospect of help anywhere, turned to the tribunal. Pardon me, Appius, I pray you, if I have spoken disrespectfully to you. Pardon a father's grief. Allow me to question the nurse here in the maiden's presence, as to what are the real facts of the case, that, if I have been falsely called her father, I may leave her with a greater resignation. Permission being granted, he took the girl and her nurse aside to the booths near the temple of Venus Cloacina, now known as the New Booths, and there, snatching up a butcher's knife, he plunged it into her breast, saying, In this, the only way in which I can, I vindicate my child, thy freedom. Then, looking towards the tribunal, By this blood, Appius, I devote thy head to the infernal gods. Alarmed at the outcry which aroused at this terrible deed, the December ordered Virginius to be arrested. Brandishing the knife, he cleared the way before him until, protected by a crowd of sympathizers, he reached the city gate. Icilius and Numitorius took up the lifeless body and showed it to the people. They deplored the villainy of Appius, the ill-starred beauty of the girl, the terrible compulsion under which the father had acted. The matrons, who followed with angry cries, asked, was this the condition on which they were to rear children? Was this the reward of modesty and purity? With other manifestations of that womanly grief, which, owing to their keener sensibility, is more demonstrative, and so expresses itself in more moving and pitiful fashion. The men, and especially Chilius, talked of nothing but the abolition of the tribunician power and the right of appeal and loudly expressed their indignation at the condition of public affairs. 49. The people were excited partly by the atrocity of the deed, partly by the opportunity now offered of recovering their liberties, 
Appius first ordered Echilius to be summoned before him, then on his refusal to come to be arrested. As the lictors were not able to get near him, Appius himself, with a body of young patricians, forced its way through the crowd and ordered him to be taken to prison. By this time, Echilius was not only surrounded by the people, but the people's leaders were there, Lucius Valerius and Marcus Horatius. They drove back the lictors and said, if they were going to proceed by law, they would undertake the defense of Echilius against one who was only a private citizen, but if they were going to attempt force, they would be no unequal match for him. A furious scuffle began. The Decemvius lictors attacked Valerius and Horatius. Their fasces were broken up by the people. Appius mounted the platform. Horatius and Valerius followed him. The assembly listened to them. Appius was shouted down. Valerius, assuming the tone of authority, ordered the lictors to seize attendance on one who held no official position, on which Appius, thoroughly cowed and fearing for his life, muffled his head with a stoga and retreated into a house near the forum, without his adversaries perceiving his flight. Septimus Oppius burst into the forum from the other side to support his colleague and saw that their authority was overcome by main force. Uncertain what to do and distracted by the conflicting advice given him on all sides, he gave orders for the Senate to be summoned. As a great number of the senators were thought to disapprove of the conduct of the Decembers, the people hoped that their power would be put an end to through the action of the Senate, and consequently became quiet. The Senate decided that nothing should be done to irritate the plebs, and, what was of much more importance, that every precaution should be taken to prevent the arrival of Virginius from creating a commotion in the army. 50. Secession of the plebs, fall of the Decemvirs. Accordingly, some of the younger senators were sent to the camp, which was then on Mount Vesilius. They informed the three Decemvirs, who were in common, that by every possible means they were to prevent the soldiers from mutinying. Virginius caused a greater commotion in the camp than the one he had left behind in the city. The sight of his arrival with a body of nearly 400 men from the city, who, fired with indignation, had enlisted themselves as his comrades, still more the weapons still clenched in his hand and his blood besprinkled clothes, attracted the attention of the whole camp. The civilian garb seen in all directions in the camp made the number of the citizens who had accompanied him seem greater than it was. Question as to what had happened, Virginius for a long time could not speak for weeping. At length, when those who had run up stood quietly round him and there was silence, he explained everything in order just as it happened. Then, lifting up his hands to heaven, he appealed to them as his fellow soldiers and implored them not to attribute to him what was really the crime of Appius, nor to look upon him with abhorrence as the mother of his children. His daughter's life was dearer to him than his own, had she been allowed to live in liberty and purity. 
when he saw her dragged off as a slave girl to be outraged, he thought it better to lose his child by death than by dishonor. It was through compassion for her that he had fallen into what looked like cruelty, nor would he have survived her had he not entertained the hope of avenging her death by the aid of his fellow soldiers, for they too had daughters and sisters and wives. The lust of Appius was not quenched with his daughter's life, nay, rather, the more impunity it met with, the more unbridled would it be. Through the sufferings of another, they had received a warning how to guard themselves against a like wrong. As for him, his wife had been snatched from him by faith. His daughter, because she could no longer live in chastity, had met Epitius but an honorable death. There was no longer in his house any opportunity for Appius to gratify his lust. From any other violence on that man's part, he would defend himself with the same resolution with which he had defended his child. Others must look out for themselves and for their children. To this impatient appeal of a genius, the crowd replied with a shout that they would not fail him in his grief or in the defense of his liberty. The civilians mingling in the throng of soldiers told the same tragic story, and how much more shocking the incident was to behold than to hear about. At the same time, they announced that affairs were in fatal confusion at Rome, and that some had followed them into camp with the tidings that Appius, after being almost killed, had gone into exile. The result was a general call to arms. They plucked up the standards and started for Rome. The decemvirs, throughly alarmed at what they saw and at what they heard of the state of things in Rome, went to different parts of the camp to try and allay the excitement. Where they tried persuasion, no answer was returned. But where they attempted to exercise authority, the reply was, We are men and have arms. They marched in military order to the city and occupied the Aventine. Everyone whom they met was urged to recover the liberties of the plebs and appoint tribunes. Apart from this, no appeals to violence were heard. The meeting of the Senate was presided over by Septimus Oppius. They decided not to adopt any harsh measures, as it was through their own lack of energy that the sedition had arisen. Three envoys of consular rank were sent to the army to demand in the name of the Senate by whose orders they had abandoned their camp, and what they meant by occupying the Aventine in arms and diverting the war from foreign foes to their own country, which they had taken forcible possession of. They were at no loss for an answer, but they were at a loss for someone to give it. Since they had as yet not regular leader, and individual officers did not venture to expose themselves to the danger of such a position. The only reply was a loud and general demand that Lucius Valerius and Marcus Horatius should be sent to them. To this man they would give a formal reply. 51. After the envoys were dismissed, Virginius pointed out to the soldiers that they had a few moments ago felt themselves embarrassed 
in a matter of no great importance, because they were a multitude without a head, and the answer they had given, though it served their turn, was the outcome rather of the general feeling at the time than of any settled purpose. He was of opinion that ten men should be chosen to hold supreme command, and by virtue of their military rank should be called the tribunes of the soldiers. He himself was the first to whom this distinction was offered, but he replied, Reserve the opinion you have formed of me till both you and I are in more favorable circumstances. So long as my daughter is unavenged, no honor can give me pleasure, nor in the present disturbed state of the Commonwealth is it any advantage for those men to be at your head, who are most obnoxious to party malice. If I am to be of any use, I shall be nonetheless so in a private capacity. Ten military tribunes, accordingly, were appointed. The army acting against the Sabines did not remain passive. There too, at the instigation of Icilius and Numitorius, a revolt against the Decembers took place. The feelings of the soldiery were roused by the recollection of the murdered Sitius no less than by the fresh story of the maiden whom it had been sought to make a victim of full lust. When Icilius heard that tribunes of the soldiers had been elected on the Aventine, he anticipated from what he knew of the plebs that, when they came to elect their tribunes, they would follow the lead of the army and choose those who were already elected as military tribunes. As he was looking to a tribuneship himself, he took care to get the same number appointed and invested with similar powers by his own men, before they entered the city. They made their entry through the calling gate in military order, with standards displayed, and proceeded through the heart of the city to the Aventine. There the two armies united, and the twenty military tribunes were requested to appoint two of their number to take the supreme direction of affairs. They appointed Marcus Opius and Sextus Manglius. Alarmed at the direction affairs were taken, the Senate held the daily meetings, but the time was spent in mutual reproaches rather than in deliberation. The Decemvirs were openly charged with the murder of Sitius, the profligacy of Appius, and the disgrace incurred in the field. It was proposed that Valerius and Horatius should go to the Aventine, but they refused to go unless the Decembers gave up the insignia of an office which had expired the previous year. The Decembers protested against this attempt to coerce them, and said that they would not lay down their authority until the laws which they were appointed to draw up were duly enacted. 52. Marcus Duilius, a former tribune, informed the plebs that, owing to incessant wranglings, no business was being transacted in the Senate. He did not believe that the senators would trouble about them till they saw the city deserted. The sacred hill would remind them of the firm determination once shown by the plebs, and they would learn 
that unless the Tribunitian power was restored, they could be not conquered in the state. The armies left the Aventine and, going out by the Nomentan, or, as it was then called, the Ficulan, road, they enchanted on the sacred hill, imitating the moderation of their fathers by abstaining from all injury. The plebeian civilians followed the army. No one, whose age allowed him to go, hung back. Their wives and children followed them, asking in piteous tones to whom would they leave them in a city where neither modesty nor liberty were respected. The unwanted solitude gave a dreary and deserted look to every part of Rome. In the Forum there were only a few of the older patricians and... When the Senate was in session, it was wholly deserted. Many beside Horatius and Valerius were now angrily asking, What are you waiting for, senators? If the Decembius do not lay aside their obstinacy, will you allow everything to go to wreck and ruin? And what, pray, is that authority, Decembius, to which you cling so closely? Are you going to administer justice to walls and roofs? Are you not ashamed to see a greater number of lictors in the forum than of all the other citizens put together? What will you do if the enemy approach the city? What if the plebs, seeing that their secession has not effect, come shortly against us in arms? Do you want to end your power by the fall of the city? Either you will have to do without the plebeians or you will have to accept their tribunes. Sooner than they will go without their magistrates, we shall have to go without ours. That power which they wrested from our fathers, when it was an untried novelty, they will not submit to be deprived of. Now that they have tested the sweets of it, especially as we are not making that moderate use of our power which would prevent their needing its protection. Remonstrances like this came from all parts of the house. At last the Decembers, overborne by the unanimous opposition, asserted that since it was the general wish, they would submit to the authority of the Senate. All they asked for was that they might be protected against the popular rage. They warned the Senate against the plebs becoming by their death habituated to inflicting punishment on the patricians. 53. Valerius and Horatius were then sent to the plebs with terms which it was thought would lead to their return and the adjustment of all differences. They were also instructed to procure guarantees for the protection of the Decembers against popular violence. They were welcomed in the camp with every expression of delight, for they were unquestionably regarded as liberators from the commencement of the disturbance to its close. Thanks, therefore, were offered to them on their arrival. Icilius was the spokesman. A policy had been agreed upon before the arrival of the envoys, so when the discussion of the terms commenced, and the envoys asked what the demands of the plebs were, Icilius put forward proposals of such a nature as to show clearly 
that their hopes lay in the justice of their cause rather than in an appeal to arms. They demanded the re-establishment of the tribunician power and the right of appeal, which before the institutions of the Fembius had been their main security. They also demanded an amnesty for those who had incited the soldiers, or the plebs, to recover their liberties by a secession. The only vindictive demand made was with reference to the punishment of the decemvirs. They insisted, as an act of justice, that they should be surrendered and they threatened it to burn them alive. The envoys replied to these demands as follows. The demands you have put forward as the result of your deliberations are so equitable that they would have been voluntarily conceded. For you, ask for them as the safeguards of your liberties, not as giving you license to attack others. Your feelings or resentment are to be excused rather than indulged, for it is through hatred of cruelty that you are actually hurrying into cruelty. And almost before you are free yourself, you want to act the tyrant over your adversaries. Is our state never to enjoy any respite from punishments inflicted either by the patricians on the Roman plebs or by the plebs on the patricians, you need the shield rather than the sword. He is humble enough who lives in the state under equal laws, neither inflicting nor suffering injury. Even if the time should come when you will make yourselves formidable, when, after recovering your magistrates and your laws, you will have judicial power over our lives and property, even then you will decide each case on its merits. It is enough now that your liberties are won back. 54. Permission having been anonymously granted them to do as they thought best, the envoys announced that they would return shortly after matters were arranged. When they laid the demands of the plebs before the Senate, the other decemvirs, on finding that no mention was made of inflicting punishment on them, raised no objection whatever. The stern Appius, who was detested most of all, measuring the hatred of others towards him by his hatred towards them, said, I am quite aware of the fate that is hanging over me. I see that the struggle against us is only postponed till our weapons are handed over to our opponents. Their rage must be appeased with blood. Still, even I do not hesitate to lay down my decemvirate. A decree was passed for the decemvirs to resign office as soon as possible. Quintus Furius, the Pontifex Maximus, to appoint the tribunes of the plebs and an amnesty to be granted for the secession of the soldiers and the plebs. After these decrees were passed, the Senate broke up and the Decemvirs proceeded to the assembly and formally laid down their office to the immense delight of all. This was reported to the plebs on the sacred hill, the envoys, who carried the intelligence were followed by everybody who was left in the city. This mass of people was met by another rejoicing multitude who issued from the camp, 
They exchanged mutual congratulations on the restoration of liberty and concord. The envoys, addressing the multitude as an assembly, said, Prosperity, fortune and happiness to you and to the state. Return to your fatherland, your homes, your wives and your children, but carry into the city the same self-control which you have exhibited here, where no man's land has been damaged, notwithstanding the need of so many things necessary for so large a multitude. Go to the Aventine, whence you came. There, on the auspicious spot where you laid the beginnings of your liberty, you will appoint your tribunes. The Pontifex Maximus will be present to hold the election. Great was the delight and the eagerness with which they applauded everything. They plucked up the standards and started for Rome, outdoing those they met in the expression of joy. Marching under arms through the city in silence, they reached the Aventine. There, the Pontifex Maximus at once proceeded to hold the election for tribunes. The first to be elected was Lucius Virginius. Next, the organizers of the secession, Lucius Sicilius and Publius Numitorius, the uncle of Virginius, then Gaius Sicinius, the son of the man who is recorded as the first to be elected of the tribunes on the sacred hill, and Marcus Duilius, who had filled that office with distinction before the appointment of the decemvirs, and through all the struggles with them had never failed to support the plebs. After these came Marcus Titinius, Marcus Pomponius, Gaius Apronius, Appius Villius and Caius Oppius, all of whom were elected rather in hope of their future usefulness than for any services actually rendered. When he had entered on his tribuneship, Lucius Sicilius at once proposed a resolution which the plebs accepted, that no one should suffer for the secession. Marcus Duilius immediately carried a measure for the election of consuls and the right of appeal from them to the people. All these measures were passed in a council of the plebs, which was held in the Flaminian Meadows, now called the Circus Flaminius. End of section 19